thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to the programme where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith, and with Eva Higginbotham. This week, can we mix and match COVID vaccines? Well, we've got the results of the latest trial. Also, a new family of beetles discovered in fossilised dinosaur poo and a pacemaker that dissolves when you're done with it. Plus, we're exploring Lyme disease, looking at the science behind the ticks that carry it, the bacteria that cause it, how we treat it and why the condition's on the rise in various places. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. An important and eagerly awaited study into COVID vaccines published its initial findings this week. The ComCov trial run by the University of Oxford has been looking at the effectiveness of mixing and matching between different COVID jabs to see which works best. For instance, is a dose with AstraZeneca's vaccine followed by an RNA vaccine like the Pfizer jab at least as good or even better than two doses of AstraZeneca? To find out, Matthew Snape recruited just shy of 900 over 50s who included people with pre-existing health conditions and members of ethnic minority groups. This study was commissioned back in December last year, before we even knew which vaccines we were going to be using. But it was already anticipated that, well, what if we had two vaccines? And what if there was a problem with supply of one of them? Could we then swap over and complete the immunisation courses with the other vaccine? So it was all about looking to see how flexible we could make the immunisation rollout and make it more robust and able to cope with any unexpected events. And when you did the study, what did you measure? We measured the antibodies and also T-cells, so the white blood cells that are an important arm of the immune system. And the participants didn't know which vaccines they'd received, so that was called a blinded study from their point of view. So that was really kind of a good way of getting accurate data on what reactions they were experiencing and any safety concerns they had. And critically, how long did you leave between the doses? Because that's the other issue, isn't it? We've seen this go from one month when we first started rolling out vaccines to 12 weeks in order to maximise uptake quickly and then to be shrunk back to eight weeks for certain groups in the community again now. What did you look at? Yeah, that's right. We've been kind of affected by that as it's gone along. When we planned the study, it was with a four-week interval. And then as we're about to get going, the guidance changed to make that up to an eight to 12-week interval. So... For about half of the participants, they're getting the vaccines at a four-week interval and half are receiving it at a 12-week interval. So we get across the whole broad range there and get an idea to see if changing the interval makes any difference in the interactions between the vaccines. And when you mix and match between vaccine products, what story emerges there? Yeah, really interesting story. So that if you, for example, take the AstraZeneca vaccine and then you get a second dose of the uh, Pfizer vaccine, you actually get a, a, a higher antibody level with that mixed schedule than if you receive the standard schedule. So AstraZeneca followed by Pfizer, actually the antibodies are about nine times higher than AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca. And similarly, we saw an increase in the T-cell responses as well. However, if you looked at it in the reverse, if you received the Pfizer vaccine first and then uh, actually had a dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine as your second dose, your antibody levels weren't as good then. Your antibody levels were about half that as if you'd received two doses of the Pfizer, Pfizer. It's a little bit more complicated than that, though, because even though that vaccine schedule didn't do as well as the Pfizer Pfizer schedule, the antibody levels were still higher than the AstraZeneca AstraZeneca schedule, which we know works. So to summarise that, what we found that's probably any of the combinations we looked at would be expected to protect against COVID disease. And why do you think you get a good and powerful response when you mix in this way? With the AstraZeneca vaccines, there may be a limitation there in that the second dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine doesn't seem to boost your immune system as much as coming in with an RNA vaccine. 
And that may be because of the nature of the vaccines. The AstraZeneca vaccine is called an adenoviral vector vaccine. What that means in English is that they take a benign virus called an adenovirus, and then they insert the genes for the coronavirus spike protein into that benign virus. So that the benign virus acts as a vector or a Trojan horse that actually allows the spike proteins to be generated in the body safely. But at the time of the second dose, what may be going on here is that more antibodies and more of the immune response is being directed against that benign virus, the adenovirus, than against the spike protein. We know that this is an issue with these viral vectored vaccines. And in fact, especially with the T cell response, you really didn't see much increase at all with the second dose. Now that said, we know a two-dose schedule of the AstraZeneca is very effective against coronavirus disease and against the Delta variant that we're seeing at the moment, but you need both doses. So even though what we're measuring, and I'm saying, oh, well, the, t the response to a second dose wasn't as so fantastic, it is actually still good enough, and it does provide good protection against the uh, Delta variant. However, yes, when we do an RNA vaccine as the second dose, you do see an even better antibody and T cell response than two doses of the AstraZeneca. This week, the JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, have published some initial suggestions that come the autumn in the UK, people over the age of 50 should receive boosting. So if people have already had two doses of Pfizer's vaccine, should they just have a third dose of Pfizer's vaccine? Whereas if they've had two doses of AstraZeneca's vaccine, would the Pfizer vaccine be best for them? Yes, I think if you've had two doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine, I think you would get a better immune response to your third dose if it was a Pfizer vaccine. If you've had two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, yeah, I think actually probably you're still best off getting a booster dose of the Pfizer vaccine again. Because overall, if you had Pfizer then AZ, actually your antibodies weren't as good. What will be important qualifier for that is to just look at the temporary side effects to make sure that that doesn't become an issue. The second dose of the Pfizer vaccine generates higher side effects in terms of fever, feeling chills, those kind of things in the first dose. I think it's going to be really important to look at what a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine looks like. Obviously, we don't know yet because we have no time machine to race forward in time and see how people's immune response changes with time. But what's your instinct telling you about the likely long-term protection that we're all going to derive from these vaccines? It's important to consider carefully what that question means. Protection, are we talking about protection against infection or are we protecting against severe disease and hospitalisation? And we know that even people who've had two doses actually can get coronavirus disease. And yet that is expected that that will become more common as increasing time goes on, six months, one year, whatever. The main objective is to protect against severe disease, hospitalisation and death. And I think that's going to be much better preserved, even if somebody does have a breakthrough infection. Very reassuring news. Matthew Snape there telling us about the initial findings of his Comcov trial. Now, a family of previously unknown beetles have been uncovered in the unlikeliest of places, in samples of 230 million year old fossilised dinosaur poo. Scientists from Sweden and Taiwan were using high energy X-ray beams to probe samples of fossil coprolites to produce high resolution 3D images of what lay within. What they saw took them quite by surprise, as Sally LePage heard from lead author Martin Kvadstrom. We saw complete beetles, a few specimens that were almost complete. It was like you modelled them up in 3D at the screen and they almost looked back at you from the screen. And, and this was truly amazing because we didn't expect to find so complete specimens. We could use the complete specimens and the, the, the small body parts to actually describe this beetle and describe a new taxon. So it's a new genus of species and even a new family of beetles. Who, who did the poo? What, what is the animal that we're talking about that's eating all of these insects? The problem with fossilised poo is that it's very hard to understand who produced it, right? Because you don't have so many clues at hand. But you have to use all the kind of clues you have, the contents of them, the size, the morphology, so the shape of the copper lights, and also understand the body fossil records, so the bones from the same site. And the best candidate to have produced this coprolite, it's a really close dinosaur relative, so a, a cousin to the dinosaurs called Silosaurus opulensis. It was a fairly small, medium-sized animal, weighed approximately 15 kilos, two, two and a half meters long, including the tail. So it was a re relatively small animal. And it was likely 
pecking insects off the ground or rooting around in the litter with a little interesting beak that it had. So it was probably eating, yeah, beetles and other insects in degraded wood or in like moist environments. And how old is the poo? How old are these insects? So the poo is uh, 230 million years old. So it's from the Triassic period. That's an old poo. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And it's from a very interesting time because it's when we get the first dinosaurs. And when we think about the dinosaurs, we think about like these ecologically dominant animals, right? But for the first 30, 40 million years of their evolution was not like that. Actually, in the beginning, there were just minor ecological components of the ecosystem. And the first dinosaurs are already around in different areas of the world, but they haven't taken over, so to speak. Yeah. So it's a little bit interesting because diets play a role here in, in trying to understand what happened, why dinosaurs became so successful. We don't know that yet. So this is a little piece to that puzzle. So this is before the T-Rex, the Triceratops. Way, way before. So if we think about T-Rex, for example, it's like 66, 70 million years ago. So the time gap, the the time difference between us and T-Rex is much, much smaller than between T-Rex and this Cilosaurus opalensis and the age of the fossilized poo here. That is incredible. How did the beetles get inside the poo? There are two possibilities here. Either they entered the poo when it was already laying on the ground or they were ingested. And why we think they were ingested is that we have so many of them in the coprolites and there are various stages of disarticulation. So most are just bits and pieces of, you know, chewed up beetles. And then we have the, the few exceptions. So it's just really two specimens that are near complete. Why can't you just look at insect fossils why are you looking inside the poo to find the insects if we think about like the most beautifully preserved insect fossils they're from amber um, and amber is all nice and good so it's fossilized uh, tree resin it's like that mosquito in jurassic park exactly yeah so you can look at hundreds of specimens and just under the microscope and see where where the nice uh, insects are the problem with amber is that it was mainly formed during relatively young geological time so When it comes to early beetle evolution and early insect evolution, we don't have any insect fossils from amber to rely on. So this really fills that gap. It's like, hey, okay, we don't have any amber, but we can look in in coprolites or in fossilized poo and we find almost the same preservation. Are you just going to go around scanning all of the coprolites, all of the poos in museums now? That's pretty much what my last five years have been all about. We've scanned maybe 100 specimens and we're trying to analyze a lot of coprolites from the same locality and then try to reconstruct food webs. I have to ask, does fossil poo smell like poo? No, fortunately not. For me, (laughs) I work with them every day, so that would be really hard for me. (laughs) You can say that again. I suppose you could also say it's a new scattergree, a beetle, that they found there in the coprolite. That was Martin Kvarnstrom, and he was talking with Sally LePage. And you can see for yourself what those beetles look like in the journal Current Biology. From baffling British weather... Sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. ...to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientist's In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, here on The Naked Scientist, coming up a new dissolvable pacemaker for your heart that melts away once its job is done. But first, if you're someone who prefers diet fizzy drinks over their full sugar versions, you'll be used to the taste of artificial sweeteners like aspartame. These compounds provide the same sweet taste with none of the calories or sugar, which can be especially useful if you have diabetes, for example. But might these sweeteners have other impacts on our health? A new study just out suggests that they can change the behaviour of bacteria that live in our intestines, turning them from helpful Dr Jekylls into aggressive Mr Hydes. Anglia Ruskin University's Javi Chichka is with us. So Javi, tell us, what have you found? So we found with our study that if we take 
two bacteria that are most commonly seen in our gut that are happy, healthy bacteria. They help us metabolize what we eat and break down some of the foods. When we add artificial sweeteners to them, such as saccharin or sucralose, we see the behavior of these bacteria change and they become more likely to cause damage to us. So more likely to stick to our own gut cells, more likely to invade our gut cells, and in some cases, more likely to kill our gut cells. And what do you think is in the sweetener that's causing the bacteria to change its behaviour all of a sudden? Well, we think it's definitely something to do with that ability to sense sweetness or sweet taste. And when we sort of inhibit that ability to taste sweetness, the bacteria don't respond. So there's definitely something in that. And we don't know exactly what it is. We're looking at the mechanism. There's lots of different possibilities because bacteria have lots of different ways they can rapidly change their genetic makeup to respond in different ways. So does that mean the bacteria think that the aspartame tastes sweet in the same way that we think the aspartame tastes sweet? We think so. And we, we, that's what the uh, data indicates. So we can't prove of what that sweet taste receptor is. There's no documented ability for bacteria to taste sweet before our study. So we think they have some kind of sensor. And that would make sense because bacteria need to respond to their environment, just like we need to respond to our environment. And do we know if it's the sweetener directly changing the behaviour of these bacteria or is it that it's having some impact on the local gut cells that would then change the behaviour of the bugs? Well, we have shown previously that taking bacteria out of the equation, sweetness can cause damage to our gut cells. But what we're seeing with when we add bacteria to the equation is that we almost have exacerbation of that. And that more closely mimics what we see in our gut, where we have gut microbiota and our own gut cells, usually working in symbiosis. And do we know if it would happen with sugar itself, or is it something special about the sweetener? It's a really good point. So there's lots of work done on things like a low in fat or a low in animal protein diet, or a low sugar diet, causing a good diversity of gut bacteria. And that's what we want. We want good diversity. The more diverse our microbiome is, usually, the more happy and healthy we are. So we do know that sugar decreases the diversity of the gut bacteria. And there have been studies with artificial sweeteners showing the same thing. What we're showing that's a little bit different to that is that it actually takes that good microbiome and turns some of the bacteria into quite pathogenic, not able to respond to antibiotics, not able to function as we'd want it to. Do we know if this would work the same in an actual human body, though, as in a dish like you've shown? It's a really good point. So we used a a human cell model, but actually we took two bacteria out of the many millions that we find in our gut. So in fact, it could well be that it's a worse scenario than we're seeing in our dish. It could be that actually there's compensation and over time it's not having such a dramatic effect. And so we really need to look in a, a whole system to be sure of that. And what do you think this means then for people who like their fizzy drinks with the Spartame on the side? Well, I think it's a really boring answer, but I think actually if we think about sweeteners as a compensation to sugar, and we know sugar can be very damaging for our health, the ideal is water, I'm afraid. And that's what we looked at. We looked at water versus sweeteners as what you'd expect to see. I think it's just being aware that sweeteners aren't without some effect on us, and we're really starting to understand what those effects are. And what if you were someone who, you know, you might have a bit of a Diet Coke addiction for a few weeks, but then you go back to the water. Is this change permanent or is it something that would come and go as your intake of sweeteners goes up and down? Well, fortunately, there are a lot of studies which show that our gut microbiota can revert back to a sort of healthy environment. So over time, taking sweeteners, um, taking some of the higher fat out of our diet can help our gut microbiome return to normal. And hopefully that shift can be temporary. But we're still, as I say, just understanding what that is, how long that takes. And is there any way, just speaking for myself here, that we can kind of balance it out? If you have enough salad at lunchtime, does that mean you can have a few Diet Cokes in the evening? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice if we could if we could compensate? I think we're better off having uh, so maybe reducing our overall intake throughout the day rather than top-heavy sweetener loading. And I think it's especially worth noting it's not just drinks. There's Sweeteners can be found in lots of different parts of our diet, sometimes without us even realising it's there. Thank you so much, Javi Chichka. That paper was just published in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences. I guess as they say, Eva, there's no such thing as a free lunch. 
Unfortunately not. (laughs) Well, to the other end of the body now, and a new dissolving implantable pacemaker has been developed by scientists in the US. The idea is that rather like dissolving stitches in situations where a permanent pacemaker may not be needed, with this device, once its job's done after a couple of months, it just disappears without the need for another operation to take it away. It works in the same way as traditional pacemakers, which send electrical impulses along fine wires into the heart and they help to control heart rhythm. But in this one's case, power gets beamed into the device from outside so you don't need any batteries. Charlotte Berkmanis very much had her finger on the pulse when she called up the device's creator, John Rogers, to hear how it works. The function is equivalent. You know, the kinds of stimulation is functionally identical. The key differences are that it's wireless and it's resorbable. We were able to demonstrate that on actual human hearts, not in human patients, but hearts from organ donors. So we're we're able to demonstrate that the devices work well in small and large animal model studies. Most importantly, that it's applicable to the human cardiac system, which is ultimately the goal in this type of context. How does it work? The device itself includes several subsystems. One is designed to harvest power wirelessly. Another is designed to take that radio frequency power, smooth it out. That component involves a radio frequency silicon-based diode and a smoothing capacitor. And the third kind of element of the device is a set of interconnect traces that terminate in pacing leads that interface to the surface of the heart. Those three components all integrated into a thin, flexible, lightweight device that gently adheres to the surface of the beating heart. It doesn't need to be removed. How does it get eliminated from the body? The electronics, the stimulator leads, wireless control interface and so on are all water-soluble. They react with surrounding biofluids and just dissolve over time and and disappear completely at a molecular level to biocompatible end products that are just naturally excreted from the body via usual processes of kidney filtration, urination, for example. What are they actually made from? We use primarily polymer-based materials, either biomaterials like silk fibroin. It's a protein that can be extracted from silkworm cocoons as a, a substrate for building our electronics. Of course, you also need conducting materials. There we choose metals that are naturally occurring in the body, such as iron, magnesium, these types of materials. They're also water-soluble and biocompatible. And then the third class of materials, silicon itself is water-soluble. If you use silicon in very, very thin film forms, then it will dissolve completely. And you put those different materials together, then you can begin to build wide-ranging classes of water-soluble electronics. Because you don't remove it, how do you control the amount of time that it functions for? Yeah, so the way that we control the operating life is we use a capping layer, a thin layer of a polymer that protects the underlying electronic materials from interaction with surrounding biofluids. And then once that capping layer has dissolved and disappeared, the electronic materials start to dissolve and the performance drifts. So we assume that the device is no longer operating in a stable fashion from that point on. And what else could you make out of these materials? We have wireless nerve stimulators that can accelerate rates of neuroregeneration in damaged peripheral nerves. The other thing that you can do is you can build wirelessly programmable drug release vehicles. So these are platforms that contain an array of reservoirs, each one of which is filled with a drug. And we can wirelessly trigger the opening of valves to allow programmed release of those drugs at specific time intervals. Once all of the drugs have been released, the platform itself can just naturally resorb and disappear uh, in the body. Is it ready to be used in human surgery? Not quite yet. Ultimately, you know, we hope to use this device with humans, but it's a process and it's a very rigorous process. So, you know, the timescale for that is typically, a, you know, a year or two to get uh, first in human tests completed. And we're just starting down that path now. Amazing stuff, isn't it? That was John Rogers. He's at Northwestern University and he published his How You Do That in the journal Nature biotechnology. Meanwhile, if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories we've been discussing this week, you can find the links to each of the reference papers like the one I just mentioned, as well as transcripts for all of the interviews on our website that comes out on Tuesday at nakedscientist.com. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. 
But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. For the rest of the show this week, we're going to be talking about Lyme disease. This is a bacterial infection that causes a range of symptoms, from skin rashes and fevers to fatigue, joint pains and even neurological problems in some cases. Stella caught the infection, she thinks, while gardening. I had various symptoms that came and went. I suddenly lost a lot of weight. I didn't actually have any headaches, but I had pains in my legs. I had pains in in my hands. I couldn't remember my colleagues' names. I had to look at an email list to try and remember who this person was sitting opposite me. I got an intense pain in my back, only at night. I had shooting pains down one side of my face. I lost some of my hearing for a short while. So all these little things coming and going. And it's that range of fleeting symptoms developing over a period of time that means that Lyme disease can often be overlooked, at least initially. The condition is also becoming more common, and we'll hear why later in the programme. Before that, though, we need to find out more about the microbe that causes Lyme disease. Justin Radolf is a microbiologist from the University of Connecticut, and hopefully, Justin, you're going to tell us all about it. So what is the microbe that causes Lyme disease? Lyme disease is caused by a bacterium in the genus Borrelia. Borrelia are spirochetes. They're elongated helical spiral-shaped organisms, which is how they get their name. There are approximately 20 species of Lyme disease spirochetes, but only a small number are clearly associated with disease. So we don't know what makes some of them more infectious than others, but we know that it ultimately goes back to the genes that they contain. Some species also appear to be able to cause certain certain forms of disease more often than others. And again, we don't know exactly why that is, but it has to do with the genes. And are those different sort of subtypes, are they distributed in different geographies? So if I look in certain countries, I will find one particular variant of the Borrelia bacteria that cause Lyme. And if I look in a different geography, I might find a different one. And therefore, I might see different manifestations of the disease in those places. Yes, that actually is correct. So for example, on North America, there's predominantly one species called Borrelia burgdorferi that far and away causes all the cases. When one looks in Europe, there are several major species that cause different manifestations and they are not distributed equally. One finds some in other countries and some in others, and it's heterogeneous. And where in the environment do those organisms hang out? They live in wooded areas mostly, though grasslands as well. They live in ticks and in small rodents, small mammals, excuse me, often rodents, and they go back and forth between them. That's how they maintain themselves. Humans get infected when they intrude on those cycles. It can happen recreationally. It can happen in terms of where people live in the northeast United States, for example. A lot of people have their nice houses out in the woods where the cycle is occurring. But we now know it even occurs in urban areas as well. So you've got a life cycle where mice get infected. Ticks feed on the mice and they get infected. Ticks go on a new mouse and infect that new mouse and it goes round and round in a circle. So do mice get Lyme disease Mm -hmm. then or are they resistant to it? Mice are reservoir hosts and as a good reservoir host, they get infected but they don't get sick. They don't mount an inflammatory response and they don't seem to be able to eliminate the bacterium. So they're persistently infected. And how do the bacteria survive in multiple hosts because they're going into these mice and that's arguably a very different environment to then being in the tick which is a completely different type of animal and then potentially passing Mm -hmm. into us as well so that the the bacteria have to exist in a whole range of different environments and and both make an animal infectious but also susceptible to being infected and it's it's quite complicated how do they do it Well, actually, that is what many of us are studying because there are regulators of the genes in the bacterium that are turned on and turned off 
depending on where the bacterium happens to be. If they're in a tick, they actually sense the blood coming in, and then they know that it's time for them to move on. And then when they get into the uh, mammal, they actually go through an adaptive process that enables them to survive in the mammal. So it's really quite ingenious what they have evolved to be able to do. And when a tick bites a person, just talk us through how the infection is transmitted and then how the infection unfolds in that person. Usually it's the nymphal tick that is the stage that feeds on a human. And so that nymph has to have been infected and will have acquired the spirochete in its earlier stage as a larvae. So when the nymph feeds and the blood starts to come in, the spirochetes sense that, they start to replicate, they start to divide very rapidly, and then they start to actually penetrate the intestine of the tick where they live, and then they go from there into the salivary glands, and they actually penetrate those, and then they are actually able to get into the saliva, and then they hitch a ride into the bite, into the feeding site, which would be a human if it was, or a mouse, it depends. And what happens to the victim, the person who's being bitten? Well, initially, not much, because what has to happen is the spirochete itself has to establish itself. We know that there are defenses that actually try to eliminate the spirochete. The tick also, the environment in the feeding site, also is thought to suppress the immune response in ways that the bacterium can take advantage of. But over the next several days, once they're deposited, that's when they get their foothold, they start to adjust to the new environment. They're also warding off various defenses that the host has naturally. And then they start to move on. They start to move laterally. That eventually gives rise to that skin rash called erythema migrans, bullseye rash. But they also go deep and they start to penetrate blood vessels. That's when they gain access to the bloodstream and they can disseminate throughout the blood and invade different organ systems, heart, central nervous system joints, etc. And produce that range of symptoms, presumably, that Stella was talking about in a range of different organ systems and at a range of different times. Yes. In fact, there are components in the bacterium that are actually pretty well known that the host recognizes as foreign. The host then mounts an inflammatory response. That inflammatory response in the tissues can cause symptoms, for example, in certain parts of the heart. It can interfere with the conduction system, cause various kinds of heart block, but it also causes systemic symptoms that make people feel muscle aches, tired, headachey, things like that. And why is the immune system not able to eliminate the bacteria from the body? That's a great question, and we do not fully know the answer. We know that the bacterium actually has its own defenses against the host immune system. It has ways of preventing antibodies that the host makes from eliminating it. Part of it may also be because they're very modal. They're much faster in moving through tissues and the white blood cells that get into the tissues in response to the presence of the bacterium. And exactly how they can persist in various sites for such long periods of time and not be eliminated is still a very open question. Thanks for clearing it all up for us there. That's Justin Rodolph. He's a microbiologist at the University of Connecticut. Now, as we've just been hearing, Lyme disease is transmitted to us when we're bitten by ticks. Now, these are small blood-sucking parasites. They're actually members of the spider family and they're found across the world. And Eva has been hearing a bit more about their fascinating biology and how they come to transmit Lyme disease. Most people think of them as rather disgusting and nefarious, sneaky, crafty, and most importantly, they can transmit germs that cause disease. That's Tom Martha, a self-described tick collector from the University of Rhode Island, describing the critters he has devoted his life to studying. Ticks. Ranging from around 1 to 5 millimetres in size, depending on life stage and species, ticks are parasitic arachnids that feed on the blood of various host animals. Ticks come in four life stages, three that are active and one is the egg stage. So eggs hatch into little tiny six-legged larvae. The next stage after a larvae is the nymph. So the larvae grab a host just like all ticks do. They take a blood meal and they use the blood meal to grow generally about 10 times their size, which sounds like a lot, but when you start pretty microscopic, then 10 times bigger isn't that much bigger. Nymphs do the same thing. They grab a host that increases their weight about a hundredfold. 
and those nymphs then transform into the adult stage, either a male or a female. Although all ticks feed on blood, they have different preferences for which hosts they want to feed on. Some are very picky and as a result pose less Lyme disease risk to humans. But some are generalists, like the American black-legged tick or the UK castor bean or sheep tick. But how do they get onto their hosts in order to feed? Ticks don't jump. They don't have wings, so they can't fly. What they do is wait. Low in the leaf litter and the leaf duff, where it's a little bit more humid, the adult stage tick will climb up vegetation just a little bit. They want to optimize where they're going to be in case the right host comes by. And if a tick makes it onto your skin... Ticks have a fairly sophisticated cutting mechanism. They have a multi-piece mouth part, a little like a Swiss Army knife, I suppose. First, it can cut a hole in your skin, and then it cuts that hole a little bit bigger and bigger, and then it inserts another part of its mouth part into this hole that has backward-pointing barbs. Once a tick finds a host, it doesn't really want to lose it, so it's specialized to hold on, and that's why people notice that it's hard to pull them out sometimes. The tick inserts its mini sore mouth part deeper and deeper into the skin until it's fully embedded. Some of the earliest things that it does with its saliva that it secretes into the host is secrete a cement substance to form this glue-like matrix that helps hold the tick in place with the tissues. It starts secreting more saliva that has this magical property of suppressing the immune system of the host, keeping blood clotting from happening. So it creates a pool of blood that its mouth part, basically a straw, is sticking into. The thing is, it's not the blood drinking that's the Lyme disease risk. It's the saliva that's the key. If the tick is infected, the Lyme bacteria is essentially spat out in the saliva of the tick if it's attached long enough. But how does the tick end up picking up the Lyme bacteria in the first place? We know that the larval stage ticks that hatch out of eggs don't carry the germ, so they have to pick it up someplace. And so they pick it up from a reservoir host, an animal that's not only infected, but infective as well. To be infective, the animal has to be able to pass along the bacteria. Other animals, like the white-footed mice in the USA, seem to have evolved to tolerate the bacteria. They don't get sick, but they also don't seem to eradicate the bacteria from their bodies. This is why they are a reservoir. Any tick that then bites that mouse is likely to pick up the Lyme bacteria from them. About one in four nymphal stage ticks in the United States is infected with the Lyme disease germ. That's exceptionally high. When we think about mosquito-borne viruses, for instance, you know, we're talking about rates of infection of one in one to five million mosquitoes carrying a virus. So we're talking about a vector here that has a tremendously high infection rate. As incredible as that is, the adult infection rate is almost 50% or even more are infected. You would say, oh, well, then the adult stage ticks are riskier, but they're not because they're a little bit larger, more easily seen, and more easily found and removed before they've been attached long enough to transmit an infectious dose. And so most cases of disease occur just after and during the season of the year, which is May, June, July, when the nymphal ticks are active. Importantly, though, that 50% infection rate is the average across the states and will vary greatly depending on precise location and the types of animals that live nearby. And the rate is much lower in the UK. But if you've been out and about and realise you've been bitten by a tick, how do you get it out? In order to remove a tick safely, there are all kinds of strategies. We want to dispel right away some of the folklore that people have of touching it with a hot object. My favorite and most reliable strategy is to have a, a pointy tweezer, and you don't want to grab the back end of a tick. Think of it as a sack of germs attached to your skin with a straw. So you want to grab it as close to the skin as possible and just pull it out. It may be a little bit challenging because of those backward pointing barbs we talked about, but it will come out. 
Sometimes the mouth part breaks off depending on your grip and everything. And so that's okay because the germs are in the back part of the tick. And as long as you haven't squeezed the back part, you should be fine. And of course, the best way to prevent catching Lyme disease is to not get bitten in the first place. Tom advises sticking to the middle of hiking trails where you can, tucking your shirt into your trousers and your trousers into your socks. And if you're regularly outside in a higher Lyme area, you could invest in a can of permethrin, an effective tick repellent which you can use to treat your clothes. That is, unless you're Tom. (laughs) Back in my younger days, I, I actually wanted to teach people the proper way to remove ticks so I would grow pathogen-free ticks in the laboratory and before I would go do an outreach activity I would let one or two attach to myself in an easy spot so I could show people the best way and the safest way to remove ticks from themselves as well. I think I'll leave that to the experts. I think I agree. Tom Martha there. And I'm not sure actually if given a choice whether I'd go for that or plunge my hand into nets full of hungry mosquitoes, which is one of the other things that scientists who study blood-sucking parasites frequently seem to end up doing. Anyway, thoroughly fascinating. So if you're unlucky enough to have been bitten by a tick infected with Lyme disease, what should you look out for and how should you be treated? Moreover, what can happen if you miss the initial diagnosis? John Orcott specialises in Lyme disease at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Acute Lyme disease starts at the site of a tick bite. When that bacteria is inoculated into the skin, acute Lyme disease usually begins a week or two later. And that local infection typically causes redness around the site of the tick bite. And that redness expands over time as the bacteria multiply with the infection. And then over a period of a week or two causes a brown red skin lesion. And that's where the infection starts. And then if it's not treated initially, that infection has the potential really in more than half the cases to enter the bloodstream and spread to other areas of the body. And where it spreads to is typically other areas of the skin. So you can get multiple skin lesions from spread. Um, It can spread to the heart and cause inflammation of the heart, especially the electrical system of the heart. And it can spread to the nervous system, uh, the lining around the brain called the meninges and cause meningitis. It's especially uh, prone to go to the cranial nerves, especially This one nerve causes facial palsy, causes one side of the face to droop, and it can go to the peripheral nerves and to the joints. And so those diverse symptoms in that early, now what we call disseminated phase as the bacteria spreads to other parts of the body can cause a diversity of symptoms and make it actually somewhat difficult to diagnose if you don't recognize that initial round red skin lesion at the side of the tick bite. And what is the treatment? If you notice that you've got a rash, what treatment would a doctor give you? So that's the good news is the treatment's pretty straightforward. A treatment of early Lyme diseases with a pill antibiotic, typically doxycycline. It's very effective at treating the Borrelia bacteria that cause Lyme disease, especially when administered in that first couple of weeks. And then you take the oral pill antibiotic, you know, for several weeks, and that's generally curative. So essentially, if you take the antibiotic quickly enough, then you're probably not going to have any lasting effects from having had Lyme disease. Odds are that early treatment prevents later manifestations. It's very, very good at preventing later um, neurologic or joint disease. There is, however, an important subset of people that even with early antibiotics still have lingering symptoms, especially symptoms like fatigue and achiness and memory issues. We have a cohort study where we start following people at the very first moment of infection when they have the rash. And we treat the people, obviously, with uh, standard of care doxycycline and then follow them over time. And when you do that prospectively over time, you see that in our study, it's about 15% of the people clinically still have fatigue and other symptoms six months after their treatment. How do you know if that's you still have Lyme disease or if that's your body being affected by the fact of having had Lyme disease? Because there are some things like post-viral fatigue, for example, that can last for a long time. 
That's the holy grail in the research field in Lyme disease is what causes these persistent symptoms. With the onset of COVID, actually, we've seen an example of a virus. Now, Lyme disease is a bacteria, but we see in COVID that viruses can cause long-lasting symptoms even after the virus is apparently out of the system. So the tough question that remains unresolved is what is the mechanism of these persistent symptoms after antibiotic treatment of Lyme disease. And there's a range of hypotheses. There may be lingering bacteria hidden away in the tissues. There may be bacterial products, proteins or nucleic acid fragments in the tissues that trigger ongoing inflammation. Or the bacteria and its products may be gone and the immune system has taken on its own autoimmune activity where the immune system, instead of being our friend, becomes our enemy in a way. And what we've been able to show from our studies uh, is that using the blood from these patients that go on to develop a persistent illness is that there are changes in their immune system, in their uh, metabolism. And so those immune markers are potential future tests. For instance, we have one immune marker that's a chemokine. It's, It's a protein that attracts immune cells into tissues, and that chemokine, CCL19, remains elevated after treatment in the people that are destined to go on to have persistent symptoms. And what can we do to help people who are suffering from persistent symptoms? So I think this is where we've fallen short, is is helping our patients with persistent symptoms in Lyme disease. The first reason is it still remains a contested illness. There's many contested illnesses, and they're predominantly ones characterized by lots of patient symptoms and a paucity of objective biologic markers on blood tests or imaging. And so the first way I think we can help the patients is recognizing that these are real illnesses, that it's not the patient's fault, there's illnesses and all in their head. It's not just because they're depressed or anxious. And then the second step is is even without specific proof of the mechanism is, is offering the patient hope and care. Treat their symptoms. We can help them cope with their symptoms. We can help encourage them to have healthy behaviors. And in the same time, also try to treat the illness as best we can with the knowledge that we have at this point. And then finally, I think to give patients hope that, you know, we're working on this, that we're, we're trying to do research to understand the mechanisms, because understanding the mechanism of the illness is obviously the key to designing future therapies. John Orcott there. And of course, it goes without saying that prevention is always better than cure. So in other words, it's better to avoid catching Lyme in the first place if you can avoid it. And that's hopefully what we're going to learn about now, because historically, especially in the UK, Lyme disease has been regarded as something of a rarity. And that's why many people tend to overlook or may write off the initial symptoms when they have it. But the condition does appear to be on the rise, or at least it is being diagnosed more frequently. Richard Bertels is at the University of Salford, and he's been looking at the possible reasons why. And what are they, Richard? It's not a straightforward answer because if you go into a wood, the number of ticks that are present in that wood, what determines that? Then you have to think about, well, what proportion of those ticks are infected and what determines that? For Lyme disease, we have a very complex ecology. So trying to implicate any specific factors as the main cause of increasing tick numbers, increasing cases of of Lyme disease is, is very difficult. So you think that the rise that's been detected, because I was I was looking at some of the reviews and they suggest really quite dramatic increases in case numbers, up maybe 300% in a 10-year period, according to some papers that have been published. You think that's a real finding? It's not that people like me and you are talking about it, so then other doctors think about it or people think about it and they take themselves off and get tested? No, I think what you're saying is playing a part as well. We've certainly seen, as you suggest, the number of reported cases rising in England and Wales and in Scotland by five, six fold over the past 20 years or so. And I certainly think awareness in the medical circles, awareness from the public as well. But there is some evidence that tick numbers are on the rise and certainly the places in the UK where you find ticks is increasing. But where are the hot spots then? You you mentioned a couple of places, but where are we tending to see the most Lyme activity? When we think historically about Lyme disease, we think about particular places that tend to be wild places, particularly areas that are heavily wooded 
or heavily grassed rough pasture or heathland. So those are the places that historically most cases have been reported. But what we're learning more about now is that we are seeing Lyme disease spread around the country more and we're seeing urban cases of Lyme disease. So we think that there's a risk of being bitten by ticks in parks. For example, parks in the middle of London are known to support quite high tick numbers. And similarly, parts of central England where we're seeing a change of land use. So we're seeing a reversion to more more woodland, afforestation, replanting of trees, less intensive farming seems to be bringing Lyme disease into those parts of the UK as well. Perhaps the most important driver of this is that these kind of habitats are fantastic for deer. And we know that deer are fantastic vehicles for ticks. I, for example, have spent a very pleasurable afternoon checking for ticks on a headless and legless roe deer in Kieldo. And when we got to about 15,000, we gave up and went to the pub. So they carry huge (laughs) numbers of ticks. And we know that in the UK, the deer population has exploded, really. We've, We've got more deer in the UK now than we have in the past thousand years or so. And the numbers are thought to have doubled really in the past 20 or 25 years. So you've got these articulated trucks, these super tankers carrying ticks around the UK. It's not surprising that the distribution of ticks in the UK is increasing and therefore where we're acquiring Lyme disease is changing. How does this fit into the life cycle that we were hearing about that Justin was talking about and also Tom was talking about earlier in the programme when you've got small ticks and big ticks, small animals and big animals. The big animals presumably are the deer. How does the relationship work? Well, it's very complicated because deer are not reservoirs for Borrelia, which is amazing. They carry these huge numbers of ticks, but they cannot transmit infection to the ticks. The infection is reservoired in, as Justin said, I think, in small mammals, so voles and mice and shrews, and also in birds, in foraging birds, and also game birds, pheasants, but also thrushes and blackbirds and things like that. So we've got this tension, really, between a high abundance of deer, meaning an awful lot of ticks, but maybe not so many of those ticks infected because they're all feeding on deer, which can't transmit the infection to the ticks. So there's a very complex arrangement in that cycle that we need to explore more and understand more if we are going to somehow be able to manipulate it to reduce the risk of us acquiring Lyme disease. I know what you mean about deer because I took until I was about in my 40s before I even saw one properly in the wild and now if I don't see one when I'm driving around in the country lanes every day when I'm out and about something weird is happening I mean there must be enormous numbers of them does that mean then that we if we've got a plague of deer we really need to be eating more venison and I mean that in the nicest possible way <laughs> well yes there's a lot of talk we're concerned about deer from the perspective of Lyme disease, but also we're worried about things like road traffic accidents and and crop destruction and destruction of commercial woodland that we know deer are party to. So there's a big discussion going on now about how we, you know, whether for the sake of Lyme disease, we look at trying to control and reduce deer numbers, but also for all of these other possible implications. Just one final point, which is that in Australia, they've had a plague of mice or, you know, parts of the eastern seaboard of the country. And this is attributed to various factors, including ideal warm conditions, rainfall, surging vegetation. What about climate change? We haven't discussed that yet. Do we foresee that that could also drive a widening of the range of the very small mammals that we heard about from Justin and Tom, who can support the Lyme bacterium and therefore widen its geography? across countries like the UK? Well, I think in truth, the distribution of the small mammals that are important is fairly uh, ubiquitous in the UK already and is driven really by habitat and land use. And we know that the tick that transmits Lyme disease in the UK, in Europe, you can find it right up to the Arctic Circle. So it's unlikely that new parts of the UK are going to be infiltrated by ticks simply as a result of climate change. But there are models climate change models looking at the impact of various scenarios of climate change on tick abundance in the UK and Lyme disease risk in the UK. And these 
tend to suggest that, first of all, ticks will be active for longer in the year. So they'll be more active in February, for example, and they'll continue to be active well into November and December. So that's a longer period of year when we can get bitten. And also that the climate change will provoke higher densities of ticks. Ticks really need humidity, so more rainfall is likely to be good for them. So that's what the models suggest. Of course, they need to be validated and we need to check for the um, degree of uncertainty in those, but that's what the models are suggesting. Thanks, Richard. That's Richard Bertels from the University of Salford. And thanks to all of our guests this week for illuminating this very complex subject. As Stella says... I think the important thing is not to be put off going into the countryside. I still garden, but I still get tick bites, but I'm aware of the ticks. And so I take them off quickly. And that is the key. Just take them off and then you won't have a problem. And we do need all of us to be aware of ticks because they they transmit some nasty diseases. But if you are aware of ticks, you protect yourself, you take them off quickly and you are much less likely to catch Lyme disease. And that really is the key. Do have a look at our website, lymediseaseaction.org.uk. We produce quite a lot of information, both about ticks, about Lyme disease, pictures of the rashes, pictures of the ticks, how to take them off so you know what to look for. Um, We are accredited to the PIF tick, which is a good sort of tick for a change. Um, So we do check our information very carefully. We have a large library of peer-reviewed literature that we look at regularly to update our information. Wise words. Well, let's finish, as we always do, with a change of tack and a change of topic. It's time for Question of the Week, and Adam Murphy has been answering this question from listener Richard. If one is recovering or has recovered from COVID, would playing bagpipes help to expand the lungs and be beneficial or detrimental? Bagpipes are something of a love-it-or-hate-it instrument. I love them, frankly. Although, I do prefer a set of Irish Ellen pipes more. But, you don't use your lungs to play those, so we'll move on. Can bagpipes really help you if Covid's taken away your puff? Well, John Dickinson is head of the Exercise Respiratory Clinic at the University of Kent, and he says it probably won't hurt. We know it's impossible to actually increase the size of your lungs playing wind instruments. Even elite athletes don't get larger lungs from participating in elite sport. However, playing wind instruments can be beneficial for controlling breathing pattern. Many people post-COVID are reporting symptoms of breathlessness on exertion. A lot of this may be due to the development of a dysfunctional breathing pattern during the time they had and were recovering from COVID. Playing wind instruments encourages an efficient breathing pattern. This may help an individual post-COVID adopt a better breathing pattern and reduce symptoms of breathlessness. Well, it's potentially very helpful. So why aren't there sets of bagpipes filling every hospital in the world? Well, here's Michael Steiner, consultant respiratory physician at the University of Leicester, who agrees with John that it probably wouldn't hurt and might even help, but... This is speculation, of course, because there haven't been any trials of bagpipe playing following COVID-19 infection, and indeed little evidence on the benefits of playing wind instruments in lung diseases more broadly. There are some trials suggesting that singing might be a useful therapy in reducing breathing problems and improving quality of life for lung disease sufferers. And Michael also points out that with the bagpipes, there's one other potential risk to be considered. I don't think playing a musical instrument like the bagpipes uh, would be likely to be harmful, although there was a report a few years ago of a patient who became seriously ill with lung inflammation, which was linked to playing bagpipes regularly and was termed bagpipe lung. However, this was thought to be due to a fungus living in the pipes rather than the act of playing the instrument itself. On a broader note, listening to and playing music can have a positive health effect on mental and physical health and well-being for all of us, including during recovery from illness. If playing the bagpipes provides pleasure and enjoyment, I would go for it. But do make sure you keep your pipes clean. And of course, as Colin 2B points out on the forum, if you're picking them up for the first time, it might be kinder to your neighbours to do the recommended breathing exercises your doctor gives you instead. Thank you for the question, Paul, and thanks to John and Michael for the answer. Next week, we have a mountain to climb as we answer Wayne's question. We've always learned that heat rises, but it's normally cooler in the mountains. Shouldn't their higher elevation make it warmer there?
So what do you think? You can come and join in the debate on the forum. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Or if you'd like to ask us a different question, then you can do that via our web form at nakedscientist.com slash question. Or you can email us. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thanks to Eva, who put the programme together this week. And do be sure to tune in next time when we're going to take a hallucinatory trip into the world of psychedelic drugs. These substances have moved beyond the hippies of the 60s and they're now into the clinic they're helping us with a medical renaissance in the treatment of diseases like depression. We'll learn how they work and how they might help to manage some of those psychiatric disorders. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. Thanks for listening. And until next time, from all of us at The Naked Scientist, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.